0: I next met with Dr. Eric Weiner to discuss key papers in breast cancer from ASCO, and we began with a plenary presentation focusing on the antibody drug conjugate trastuzumab m or TDM1.
1: Amelia is a study that was done in HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. So patients who had already progressed on a trastuzumab-containing combination And patients were randomized to receive either the standard, which is capecitabine and lapatinib, or I should call it the regulatory standard in the U.S., or to receive TDM1 as a single agent. The study demonstrated that TDM1 was associated with a longer time to progression, less in the way of toxicity, And while the analysis is still early, certainly the suggestion that there will be a significant improvement in overall survival. And I think this is a very important study because it clearly establishes TDM1, which is a drug that I've been fortunate to work with now for the last five or six years, as a drug that will play an important role in the treatment of HER2-positive breast cancer.
0: So this agent is an antibody drug conjugate, similar to vedotin in CD30 positive lymphoma. What's TDM1 composed of and how does it work? Yeah, well, as you mentioned,
1: TDM1 is an antibody drug conjugate. There's a long history of development of these drugs and most of that history has been peppered with failures. This of course is very different, it's a success. Why exactly it's a success, I think, is up for some amount of speculation. It may be related to the specific technology that was used here. It may also relate to the fact that trastuzumab turns out to be a very effective way to deliver a drug to a HER2-positive cancer cell because there are simply so many HER2 receptors on the surface of the HER2-positive cancer cell. The drug itself is a combination of trastuzumab with a metansine. This is an agent that inhibits microtubules that was developed as a single agent now about two decades ago and was largely abandoned because it was so toxic. But here, tiny amounts of the metansine are delivered in combination with trastuzumab, and in fact, they're delivered intracellularly after the HER2-positive cancer cell takes up the trastuzumab along with the metansine. And the result is that it results in cytotoxicity without significant toxicity to the patient.
0: You mentioned toxicity. And the two things that I think were kind of discussed there were thrombocytopenia and liver function abnormalities What was seen in this study, and what's been your own observation in this regard? So thrombocytopenia does occur. It typically occurs about
1: seven days after a dose of TDM1 is delivered. For the most part, it is asymptomatic. The mechanism of that thrombocytopenia is uncertain and is probably not related to typical myelosuppression. Patients typically recover from it in a fairly short period of time. And unless one is checking platelet counts on a weekly basis, you don't even know that it's occurring. In a minority of patients, there is a progressive fall in the platelet count over the course of many months of treatment. And that seems to happen in somewhere in the range of about 20% of patients, although generally not to a level that interferes with dosing of the drug. And importantly, there was no evidence of a significant increase in hemorrhage among patients treated with TDM1 versus those on capcitabine and lopatinib. And in terms of LFT abnormalities, these have been seen with TDM1. For the most part, they too have not been dose-limiting, although occasionally they have interfered with dosing in selected patients, and it's a toxicity that has to be monitored.
0: When you counsel a patient about to receive this agent, from your point of view, is it kind of in the same realm of trastuzumab in terms of lack of side effects? For the most
1: part, it is. You know, the one exception being that unusual patient who has significant LFT abnormalities or progressive thrombocytopenia. But for most of the patients I've taken care of on TDM1, they don't feel any different than a patient does who is on trastuzumab which means they basically don't feel any different from
0: somebody walking around, not on any drug. Any expectations or maybe of information in terms of if or when this agent's going to become available?
1: So my understanding is that it is likely to be available sometime in the next six to nine months. When it is initially approved, it will not be in the first-line setting, For that, we're going to have to wait for the so-called Marianne trial that is looking at TDM1 in the first-line setting. Personally, I think it's pretty likely that that trial is going to be a positive trial given the results that were seen with the phase 2 randomized trial comparing docetaxel trastuzumab
0: with TDM1. And can you just remind us of the design of the Marianne trial?
1: So the Marianne trial compares docetaxel trastuzumab and pertuzumab versus TDM1 versus TDM1 plus pertuzumab.
0: So I'm curious, of course, you know, it depends on what's going on and what more we might know if and when it does become approved. But right now, we've got a major new change to treatment out there in the fact that pertuzumab is available. What are you doing right now in terms of management of HER2-positive disease? How are you incorporating pertuzumab, and how do you anticipate maybe the way you're going to add in TDM1 on top of that? Yeah, so that'll depend on a number of factors. At the moment, at our
1: institution, we have yet to have pertuzumab on formulary. Once it is on formulary, though, I think the simple answer is that any untreated patient with metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer will receive a taxane pertuzumab trastuzumab combination outside of a clinical trial. I'm hoping that it will not be a problem to give paclitaxel trastuzumab, pertuzumab as opposed to docetaxel only because I think it's a far less toxic regimen. I think the bigger challenge with pertuzumab in the short term will be those patients who have had several prior lines of therapy where I think we have reason to believe that pertuzumab could be effective, but where it will not at least initially be approved. And there, what we've discussed as a group of breast cancer doctors at our institution is that we will certainly consider using pertuzumab, but we're going to have to get approval from the insurer first. Because it is such an expensive drug that it's not the kind of drug that you can leave a patient essentially holding the bag in terms of the cost of the drug if the insurer doesn't approve it.
0: And how do you see potentially layering in TDM1 into the overall management schema? So at the moment, I mean, I do think pertuzumab will be
1: used in the first line and TDM1 will be used in the second line for newly diagnosed patients. I think the Marianne trial could change that and could easily move TDM1 to the first-line setting. And then, of course, the big unknown is whether pertuzumab will add to TDM1. And on the surface, I think there are reasons to believe that it's likely that it will add. I mean, TDM1 is essentially chemotherapy plus trastuzumab. And so since pertuzumab adds to docetaxel trastuzumab, you might expect it to add to TDM1 In the one trial that has looked at this, albeit a small phase two experience, there wasn't the sense of a big bump in terms of response rates with the addition of pertuzumab to TDM1, but that was a small experience and I think it's hard to extrapolate from it. And beyond that, given the fact that TDM1's mechanism of action is a little different from chemotherapy and trastuzumab. You could also imagine that it might be different for that reason as well. So I think we'll just have to see. If it turns out that TDM1 pertuzumab is the winner in Marianne, then that may pretty quickly become the first-line regimen. If it turns out that TDM1 and TDM1 pertuzumab are equivalent, then I think doctors will have to debate whether they want to give... A protuzumab-containing combination up front as the initial therapy, or TDM1 up front as the initial therapy.
0: And also curious about the issue of trials of TDM1 in the adjuvant setting. And your group did a study looking at paclitaxel, trastuzumab, you know, a single-arm study, lower-risk patients. I believe that's finished accrual, and I've kind of heard rumors you're either thinking about or planning to look at TDM1.
1: Yeah, so that study was patients who were at lower risk of disease recurrence than most of the patients in the randomized adjuvant trials. In order to enter that trial, you had to have a tumor less than three centimeters and could have no more than a micromet. In fact, very few patients had micromets. Most patients had no negative disease. We hope to be presenting the results of that study probably at ASCO of 2013, It's not going to be presented in San Antonio this year just because we don't have enough follow-up yet. And our group is going to be doing a study looking at TDM1 in that same setting. It's actually a randomized study that's a little bit different than the typical randomized study. It's a four-to-one randomization between TDM1 and paclitaxel trastuzumab. And from a toxicity standpoint, we actually are comparing the two regimens, and that's why we're doing the randomization. But from an efficacy standpoint, we're actually using the same design for the TDM1 patients as we did with the paclitaxel trastuzumab study, which is that we are targeting a relapse rate that we think would be acceptable. And if, in fact, we hit that or have a lower relapse rate, then we will declare success.
0: Kind of seems like this would be an agent you really want to think about in somebody you don't want to give chemo to, like an older patient or those with comorbidities. Yep. So,
1: well, like an older patient, one with comorbidities, or somebody with a relatively small tumor who's at fairly low risk of disease recurrence, where you don't want to create more problems with your therapy than the patient already has. Right. And I can tell you, at least informally, that there is interest in potentially exploring this in older patients as well, maybe even older patients who are at higher risk of disease recurrence, but where one really doesn't want to start down the path of either ACTH or TCH.
0: Any other discussions in the cooperative groups, for example, about TDM1 adjuvant trial? Are we kind of waiting on Marianne?
1: We all believe that TDM1 should be looked at in the adjuvant setting. Within the CLGB, we've been talking about an adjuvant trial since 2008. Unfortunately, we haven't gotten very far and have had some frustrations around that. One of my personal concerns is that I think there's a temptation as we develop more and more of these drugs to simply add one on to another so we have these very complex, extremely expensive regimens. And what we really need to do is we need to figure out who needs more, who needs what we're giving them and making it easier for them, and who might do well with less.
0: So a couple other HER2 papers, always hard to get off HER2 nowadays in breast cancer, so much going on. But I wanted to ask you about NSABP B41, the neoadjuvant study. We had seen a bunch of neoadjuvant studies about a year and a half ago at San Antonio, and this is one that we were kind of waiting on. Right. So this study is fundamentally a little different from the others that were performed in that
1: all the chemotherapy was given up front. So patients received an anthracycline-based regimen followed by paclitaxel with either trastuzumab, lapatinib, or both. Here again, we saw at least numerically a bump in the PATH-CR rate when both anti-HER2 agents were used, although the differences were more modest than had been seen in the other studies, and the statistical significance was at best borderline. So the results, I think, in many ways were less impressive than the results of neo-alto. And what I would say here is that to some degree, the use of the anthracycline prior to the HER2-directed therapy is overall increasing the PATH-CR rates and to some degree is functioning as an equalizer. So you're just dampening down the added effect that you see by combining lapatinib with trastuzumab versus giving trastuzumab alone.
0: You know, I asked you in terms of non-protocol care, how you see your own practice going in terms of pertuzumab and maybe TDM1. I didn't ask you where lapatinib is heading in your practice. And also from a research point of view, is there any interest in the triple blockade with lapatinib, pertuzumab, and TDM1? So
1: first, I would say we have to prove that pertuzumab plus TDM1 is better than TDM1 alone. If that's the case, then I think potentially there might be interest in triple blockade. I also think that a case can be made to look at TDM1 in combination with Lapatinib. We know that trastuzumab and Lapatinib together seem to work very, very well, both with chemotherapy and without chemotherapy. And there, the two examples are the NeoAlto study. And the paper from Joyce O'Shaughnessy and Kim Blackwell, where they just used the two drugs alone in patients with metastatic disease who had been on multiple prior regimens. And so given those data, I think that there's interest in looking at TDM1 with lopatinib. In terms of where lopatinib's going, I think that as a general rule, it's probably not increasing in use and it's being moved down the line into later lines of therapy, I think that's really for two reasons. One is that it is more toxic than some of the other agents, and particularly when you combine it with trastuzumab, you do wind up with more in the way of GI toxicity, specifically diarrhea. And the other is that lopatinib, at least as a single agent or as a single anti-HER2 agent in combination with chemotherapy is probably just not quite as good as trastuzumab. But where it does shine, in my mind, is when you give it with trastuzumab. And I think the combination of trastuzumab and lapatinib as a regimen to give to a patient with metastatic breast cancer is one that should be very seriously considered by clinicians. I realize at the moment it's not an FDA-approved regimen, but it's a serious consideration for me when I'm taking care of a woman with HER2-positive breast cancer who's had two or three lines of therapy before. I'm not yet in any patient using it in the adjuvant or neo-adjuvant setting, but I think it's going to be very interesting to see what the results of Alto demonstrate.
0: Any comments on Sandy Swain's long-awaited presentation of the NSABP B38 adjuvant trial. I can remember when this got started, there was so much excitement about it, but it seems like by the time they actually presented it, I'm not sure how much residual interest there was in chemo. But anyhow, looking at this issue of dose-dense therapy versus TAC. So I actually
1: think this is a study that showed us just what I had hoped it would show us. And look, I am a doctor who tends to use dose-dense therapy if I'm giving an anthracycline and taxane and I don't use TAC, but I had nothing invested in this study in terms of wanting it to show one treatment or another as the more effective therapy. And I think what this study says is that if you compare an anthracycline taxane regimen with another anthracycline taxane regimen, that there's really no substantial difference. And that doctors should feel free to use the regimen that they are most comfortable using and have most experience using. I think it's hard to make the argument that you have to pick one or another. Personally, I find the toxicity profile of AC followed by paclitaxel a little easier to manage than the toxicity profile of TAC. But in truth, Sandy Swain stood on the podium and came to really the opposite conclusion. And I respect her clinical skills and her judgment. And so I think it really largely comes down to what you have experience with. And I think importantly, it did not show a benefit for layering on another chemotherapeutic agent, specifically gemcitabine, and adding gemcitabine added toxicity, but didn't add any further efficacy.
0: How about the CALGB40502 study? I've got to congratulate you all. And even 10 o'clock the night before, I could not squeeze out of Hope Rugo what the results were. <laughs> and so the embargo was spectacularly effective. And I, we were also curious to see what it was going to show. What did this study look at? And what did you all see? Yeah, well, of course, I have a bias here, and it's
1: because I'm an author on this paper, and and of course, this is our study in the CLGB, so in saying that I think it's an important study, you have to take that into account, and so I apologize for that up front, but I do think this is an important study. We chose to look at the combination of paclitaxel with bevacizumab because that was the standard at the time. And to compare it against nab-paclitaxel bevacizumab and ixabepilone bevacizumab, so the study was set up to look at each of the investigational arms in comparison with the control paclitaxel bevacizumab, and it was set up as a superiority trial with the hypothesis that either of the investigational arms could be would be superior to paclitaxel bevacizumab. And what the study demonstrated, and in fact, it demonstrated using fewer patients than we had initially anticipated because we crossed early stopping boundaries before the study was completed, but it demonstrated that Ixabep was not superior to paclitaxel. And in fact, in this case, it was actually inferior to paclitaxel and statistically significantly inferior to paclitaxel and nab-paclitaxel while not statistically inferior to paclitaxel had based on the early stopping rules had basically no chance of being superior to paclitaxel we can't say that the two are equivalent because this was not a non-inferiority trial or an equivalency trial it was a superiority trial that didn't demonstrate superiority of nab-paclitaxel and My take-home conclusion from this is that the standard therapy, that is paclitaxel, in this case given with bevacizumab, but I don't think it would be different if you didn't give it with bevacizumab, is still the standard and is as effective as giving any other agent.
0: One final question about this study. Another point that came out in the discussion after this was the similarity in what was seen in this study, particularly the control paclitaxel bev arm, to what was seen in the ECOG paclitaxel original study 2100 in terms of disease-free survival. What did you think about that? And does it give you pause that maybe we ought to be rethinking paclitaxel bevacizumab?
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. The control arm in this study And it was a study where the eligibility almost paralleled the eligibility in that initial ECOG trial. These were all first-line patients. They were HER2 negative, mix of ER positive and ER negative. And the progression-free survival results were right on target with what one would have expected from the ECOG trial. In my mind, the issue with bevacizumab is not one of whether it improves progression-free survival, I think it pretty clearly does improve progression-free survival. The problem is that it has not improved overall survival in multiple trials, and the improvement in progression-free survival is probably at some cost in terms of toxicity, let alone the financial cost. And so if you have a drug that doesn't improve survival increases the toxicity, and improves progression-free survival. It's a balancing act between toxicity and better disease control. And I think that's where we are with bevacizumab. Are there still occasional patients who I would like to be able to treat with bevacizumab if there were still an approval and if it were easier to get coverage for payment? The answer is yes. Do I think we should be using it in everyone? And here I would say no. My understanding is that there are still studies going on trying to identify predictors of benefit from bevacizumab. And if we can identify those predictors, maybe we will actually be able to identify a group of patients who derive a survival benefit.